in these last verses of chapter 15, the Apostle Paul doesn't say anything new. Everything he says here, he has said before, but he repeats some remarkable things and he amplifies them by saying it in a different way. So grammatically speaking, Paul shifts from a third person point of view to a first person point of view. If you're paying careful attention, you can see that he's been in this whole chapter, he's been describing the future of Christians, but he's been describing it as an observer. And so he's been using words like it over there and they. But here he transitions to describing the future of Christians, not as an observer, but as an actual participant, which is very different. And so he goes from using those pronouns like it and they to we and us. So he's powerfully moving his readers from mere observation to participation. For example, pay attention to the felt difference when you say these three truths from different perspectives. They were forgiven of all their sin. We are forgiven of all our sin. That's very different. Or, they will conquer death. We will conquer death. That's the shift in the way that he is talking about this. They, over there, whoever they are, they will inherit the kingdom of God. And now he says, no, we, we will inherit the kingdom of God. So, as fellow participants with the Corinthian believers Paul here, he concludes his teaching that he's been giving in chapter 15, his teaching on the resurrection of the dead, by focusing the Corinthians' attention on the very last day. He brings it to a close and says, let me focus your attention on the very last day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. It is the day when... His people, we will be raised from the dead and we will enter into God's new kingdom. Paul knows something. He knows that getting that day in focus brings clarity to this day. Paul knows that getting the extraordinary triumph of the last day into focus, that that brings clarity of focus and purpose to the ordinary work of today. So he wants to focus them 
on that last final victory, that extraordinary triumph, because that brings clarity of purpose to the ordinary work that we do every day. It is not, he will make clear, our work is not in vain. So that's where he's headed. We'll read those verses in just a minute again together and I'll do my best to communicate the truth that is in them. We need to start by praying together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for the words that you have for us here today. And we ask that you would, by your Spirit, come and help us. Help us to understand and apply your truth. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you, then you're going to find today's text on page 904. 1 Corinthians 15. In one sentence, here's what Paul has to say in these verses before us. Stand firm and do the work of the Lord, knowing that one day you will conquer death and inherit the kingdom of God. Let me say that one more time. It's just a summary of all the words we're about to read from Paul. Christians, stand firm and do the work of the Lord, knowing that one day you will conquer death and you will inherit the kingdom of God. And I'd like to move us through this passage this morning by taking it on in three parts. And I'll give them to you now. Part one, the mystery of the last day. And Paul will describe that in verses 51 through 53. The mystery of the last day. Part two, the mockery of death. In verses 54 through 57, we have the mockery of death. And then finally, the ministry of God's people. That's verse 58. The ministry of God's people. So let's go to the first part. The mystery of the last day, which Paul's going to get into in verse 51. But let's begin... By reading verse 50. We haven't looked at this verse yet. Here Paul is repeating something that he feels he needs to say again. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We've heard this from Paul before. We are flesh and blood. You and I are perishable. That means that these bodies that we have, they are subject to decay. They are subject to death. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, and the kingdom of God is 
the future new earth, which will be the eternal dwelling place for God and His people. That's the kingdom of God here. The kingdom of God, on the other hand, it's not perishable like you and me. Paul says it is imperishable. That place, it's not subject to decay. It's not subject to death. It is not subject to destruction. And so here's the problem that Paul raises in verse 50. Though we are God's children, and so we are the rightful heirs to His kingdom, we cannot actually inherit our inheritance. We cannot actually inherit and enter His kingdom because, verse 50, the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. In other words, and here is the groundwork that verse 50 is laying. We must be changed. We're going to have to be changed because the way we are now in these bodies, we are not qualified to inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. So think about it. When we die, our body goes in the grave and our soul goes to be with Jesus. Well, the future of kingdom of God requires a body. It's going to require a body. Remember, it's not this fluffy, bring your own harp, floating on cloud, spiritual kingdom. It's a real physical kingdom. So we are going to need a body. It is a new earth and it's going to require a body. And you and I, we can't be just reunited to our old body as is. Gross, right? You've had loved ones who have died and their soul, if they were believers, went to be with Jesus and you know what has happened to their bodies. They can't be reunited to that body as is. Good night. My mom and dad are in these little boxes. I don't mean to be morbid, but think about that. We're not going to be reunited to our old body as is. That old body, what is Paul saying? It needs to be what? It needs to be transformed. It needs to be changed. That's the point he makes in verse 50. Our old bodies are going to have to be made into new bodies or we cannot inherit our inheritance and enter the new kingdom of God. Okay, that is the reality that has to be overcome. And it will be, as Paul explains in the following verses. So now here is the mystery. He's going to reveal the mystery, how this works. The mystery of the last day, beginning in verse 51. Behold. That's a strong word. It's one of those words maybe we don't say a lot. But it's meant to grab your attention. I might say, listen up. Or, 
If I was talking to my boys, I might say, look at me in my eyes. It's grabbing attention. What I'm going to say is important. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. This may not be mystery the way you think of mystery. This isn't murder she wrote kind of mystery. This isn't Scooby-Doo kind of mystery. Where there's a mystery and you discover what the, the, the mystery is, the solution. You discover the secret through investigation or inquisition. No, this is a mystery that you only get the truth of through revelation. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostles are described as stewards of the mysteries of God. And if you read throughout the New Testament, there's all kind of mysteries that are being revealed. In other words, these are truths that were previously hidden from God's people. They were realities that were hidden. They were secrets. And now, in the New Testament, you read that these mysteries, the truth, is being revealed. That's what Paul is doing here. He's he's going to declare the truth of this mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You see the change in point of view. He switched from the third person to the first person. What Paul had declared before impersonally, he declares personally here. So if you're a Christian, you should include yourself in the we here. We shall not all sleep. That means not all Christians will die. Some will be living when Christ returns. But here's what will happen to every Christian. But we shall all be changed. So that is the problem of verse 50 solved in verse 53. The problem, verse 51, the problem of verse 50 was we need to be changed. And verse 51 assures us we all will be changed. How? Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Zechariah in the Old Testament, 9.14 says, Then the Lord will appear over them, and His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, and will march forth, in the whirlwinds of the south. So this is what will happen on the last day when Jesus returns. It's a mystery that Paul now is unveiling. We will all be changed, we're told, in a moment. The Greek word there is atomos, from which we get our word atom. And it refers to the shortest possible unit of time. So our bodies are not going to go through some sort of gradual metamorphosis. We will be changed, Paul says, 
in an instant. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. That's right. That must happen according to what Paul has told us in verse 50. And it will happen according to what he says here in verse 53. So there is the mystery of the last day revealed. What will happen, Paul? How will it all end? How will we be fit to inherit the new heavens and the new earth? And Paul tells them, on the last day, Christians will all be changed. They will conquer death, and they will be qualified to inherit the kingdom of God. Let's move on to the next part in verses 54 through 57. And here we have the mockery of death. This is a fascinating passage. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable. So he's saying, so when that happens, what I just told you is going to happen. And when that happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Which is a reference to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Let me read that to you. He will swallow up, and that means to drink down. He, God, will drink down death forever. That's quite an image. God will drink down. He will swallow up, Isaiah 25, 8, death forever. And, still in Isaiah 25, the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So on that last day, Paul says, picture it. That's what he's trying to get us to do. Imagine it. On that last day, Christ will raise us up imperishable. He will raise us up immortal, which will mean that death has been swallowed up. No more death. No more death. Game over. Death will be defeated. Death will be destroyed. So then what? After death is destroyed, then comes the mockery of death. So death is destroyed on the last day. And then, think about this, it is taunted. 
Death is destroyed and then it is taunted. And Paul is referring to Hosea 13, 14, which I'm not going to read, but he says here, O death. So this is speaking to death that has just been destroyed. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So it is as if Christ and Paul and we are standing over death in its grave and saying, is that all you got? No more? Where's your strength now? Where's your tyranny now? Where is your sting now? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. If you wanted to do a study on your own, that is basically a very brief summary of Paul's extensive teaching elsewhere on sin and death. Namely in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. But he summarizes what he says there by saying the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. So let me try and explain what that means. Personally, I had to think a lot about this this week. The sting of death is sin And the power of sin is the law. Well, death, it's not merely the end of the road. This is how a lot of people think about death. They think about death as being amoral. They think about death as just being a natural process. They think about Death is just being the end of the road. And there's ways that people think about it. And there's ways that people describe it to try and avoid their fear of it. But death is more than that. It is worse than that. It is not just a natural phenomenon. No, death is punishment for sin. Death is punishment for For sin, death, one commentator writes, is an evil that need not exist and would not exist if man were not in rebellion against his creator. So sin is what makes death so horrible. Sin is what rightly vilifies death. Sin accurately identifies death as a great evil. Enemy. This is much more than just a natural phenomenon. This is how sin is the sting of death. It's ugly. It's evil. It's horrible. And then Paul writes, and the power of sin is the law. 
The power of sin is the law. The law reveals sin. The Bible tells us. Maybe you don't know what's wrong. Maybe you don't know what's evil. Maybe you don't know what's wicked. God's moral law says that's evil. That's wrong. That's wicked. It reveals not only does the law reveal sin, here's what happens to human nature. It provokes sin. It is Richard Pratt, the jumping off ground from which sin operates. Right? The law says don't do that. And we say, why not? There must be something interesting about it. There might be something I'll enjoy there. And so we're told, even as kids, right? You can remember being a little kid and your parents tell you not to do something and often what immediately pops into your head? Well, I wasn't wanting to do it before, but now I want to do it. Don't touch the stove. It's hot. It's a classic example. Well, what? Really? Is it really? Is it that hot? Why can't I? I think I can touch it. Maybe it'll be cool. And so we learn by... Right? Not listening. We're actually provoked often by the law. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 7. The law increases sin, we're told. The law stirs up sin, we're told. So verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So where sin is pardoned, Where we are forgiven of sin, it has no sting. It has no power ultimately over us. Death, Paul describes it, has been swallowed up in victory. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, Our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So this is the mockery of death. And Paul brings it into focus for us. Death will be defeated by God. It will be rendered powerless. And it will be laughed at. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to that day. So Paul has addressed the mystery of the last day and the subsequent mockery of death and now finally the ministry of God's people. Let's look at verse 58, his last verse of this chapter. This is Paul's conclusion. This final verse following this teaching on the resurrection of the dead. It'll be my conclusion to this sermon. And every good conclusion, Paul of course knows this, it takes all the previous points and then answers the question, so what? Or, now what? 
Okay, I understand all this teaching about the resurrection of the dead. How does this apply to my life? And that's what Paul does here. In light of the future hope that Christians have, here's what he exhorts us to do. Verse 58, Therefore, my brothers, in other words, in light of all that I've taught you, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So he is saying, stand firm and do the work of the Lord, knowing that one day you will conquer death and you will inherit the kingdom of God. So be steadfast. Be immovable. The NIV puts it this way. Stand firm and let nothing move you. Stand firm on the truth of the hope to come and give yourself fully, Paul is saying, to the work of the Lord. So what is the work of the Lord? I figured that was the question that's not directly answered in this text, but that we need to know the answer to if we're going to apply Paul's teaching. What is the work of the Lord? We know what work is, don't we? We all know what work is. At the very least, we know it's the opposite of rest. Work is not rest. Rest is not working. Rest is what I'm planning to do this afternoon. And probably many of you are planning to do this afternoon. Here's my task list today. Watch football. Play spike ball. Eat lasagna. That's not work. That is rest. I mean, if you were going to rest this afternoon, you're probably going to rest on Thursday. So we know, don't we? Many of you, tomorrow morning, your work will begin. Maybe tonight, your work will begin. We know what it is to work. But what is work of the Lord? Think about this. I think this is the answer. Work of the Lord is work done for God. Work that is done for God. Work that is done for the glory of God. Work that is done for Christ's sake. That is what the work of the Lord is. Now be careful and take note of this. Work that is seemingly of the Lord may not be. And, on the flip side, work that is seemingly not of the Lord may be. 
is not necessarily black and white. For example, a pastor may be after the glory of man. And on the flip side, a housewife may be fully devoted to the glory of God and the good of her family. So not all work that is seemingly of the Lord, like, wow, a pastor. It might not be work of the Lord. Not if it's done for selfish motives. Not if I'm working for the praise of other people. Not if I'm working or you're doing your work out of anxiety or worry or fear. It's about motive. Why are you doing whatever work that you're doing? Are you doing it for yourself? Are you doing it for the praise of someone else? Are you doing it out of fear that God will judge you if you don't do this work or do it right? I mean, we could go on and on with all kinds of bad, impure motives. But any work that we do can be work that is of the Lord if that work is done for His namesake, for His glory. Remember Paul even said in Colossians chapter 3, hey, when you're at your 9 to 5 job where you're working for your employer, don't forget, do your work not like you're working for that employer, but like you're working for God. So work of the Lord. That's his closing application here. Always be abounding in it. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. And so what keeps us from doing that? What are the obstacles to doing our work for God? Somehow Paul's teaching has removed an obstacle. Which is why he says, after all this teaching, Therefore, always be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. So I named some. There can be lots of obstacles. Pride and selfishness and fear, anxiety, worry. But there's another obstacle And you see it here in the text. He says it at the end. There's something he wants to remember. And that is that his labor, our labor, it is not in vain. There's an obstacle. An obstacle to not doing your work, whatever it is. An obstacle to not doing your work for the glory of God is thinking, this is vain. This is worthless. This is empty. What I'm doing at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. 
I'm doing it for nothing. What is the point? And Paul's saying, no, your work, it is not for nothing. It is not in vain. In fact, that's been a theme in this whole chapter. That word vain, look back through chapter 15. It's there five times. Our belief is not in vain. Our faith is not in vain. You're preaching the gospel. That is not in vain. Here, the work of the Lord, it is not in vain. Okay, are you putting this together? So why? Why Why is this work that we should do for the glory of God, whatever it is, how great or little in the eyes of man, why is it not in vain? And the reason it's not in vain is the teaching of this entire chapter. That's why at the end, Paul says, listen, remember, your work, it is not in vain. So give yourself fully to it. So we just look back at chapter 15 and we understand what Paul has taught us, and that answers the question of why our work is not in vain. So what has Paul been teaching us in this chapter? Christ was raised from the dead. And you will be raised from the dead. This life is not all there is. If it is, I get it. All is vanity. Eat, drink, verse 32, for tomorrow you die. But that's not the case, Paul is saying. Christ has been raised from the dead. You will be raised from the dead. You will conquer and taunt death. You will live in the kingdom of God, in the new earth, and the new heavens forever. Therefore, your life has meaning. This life has purpose. The famous author, Leo Tolstoy, wrote War and Peace. And when he was around the age of 50, he wrote about this. He was very close to suicide. And this is the reason, I'll read it to you, this is what he wrote. This is why he was so close to suicide, to just giving up. He wrote, my question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live. It was, what will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish or work for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Do you hear the Apostle Paul speaking directly to that question. Isn't this just vanity? Isn't this meaningless? What is the point? Isn't this life all there is? Paul ends this chapter saying, no. 
Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Do all things, he said a few chapters ago, for the glory of God. Knowing that your labor it is not in vain. This life is not all there is. You will die, Christian, and when you die, it will be a sad day for those who love you. But you will not be sad at all. And you will be instantly united to Jesus. And you will be with Him in paradise. Whatever that is, wherever it is, sounds pretty good. And then one day, you will be your body will be raised from the dead and it will be changed and what was perishable will be made imperishable and what, will be, what was mortal will be made immortal. You will have an immortal body and you will live in that immortal body forever with God in His kingdom. Get that day into focus Think about that day when the pressures and the trouble and the difficulty of this world make you lose your perspective. Focus on that day and it will bring clarity of purpose and meaning to what you do today. Is Paul's application of chapter 15. Every Sunday following every sermon... We respond by taking communion together. And so if you are here this morning and you're a Christian, which means that you have turned from sin and you have turned to Jesus, you have placed your trust in Him, you're committed to Him and His people, you're committed to this church or another local church that faithfully preaches the gospel, then you're welcome to take communion with us. I did it again. I forgot to grab a cup. Could somebody bring me a little communion cup? Thank you, Greg. Now you need one, right? And I also need to ask, is this a note from you, Greg? <laughs> what are you saying here? Is this a suspicion or? Yeah. Okay. All right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you a little story, and then I'm going to say, take communion at your own risk. <laughs> the story is, we, we, we had an enormous box of these wonderful communion cups. It's a different brand, by the way, so it may taste better. Uh, so we had a new box. We opened up the box this morning. I, by we, I mean I. I opened up the box this morning, and many of them had exploded. I don't know how that happened, but there was like grape syrup all over the place. So I went through them carefully and found the additional 30 or so that we needed. Okay, so they are included in that basket. So you may have one of them. So my note from Pastor Greg is communion juice is fermented. I tasted it. Sparkly. Is it okay to drink? Question mark. Thank you. That's great, actually. <laughs> so I don't know what to tell you. I mean, we're already at risk just being here. So if you want to take it, I'm going to take it. <laughs> just... The most bizarre things are happening. Okay, so 
peel back the top layer of this lunchable version of communion. And here we have the wafer, and this represents the body of Christ. Take and eat this with me. And then we have dun, 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 the cup. You'll peel back that next layer. This represents the blood of Christ. Take this and drink with me. Looking at all the faces. Will you please stand again with me?